Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by the game Best Fiends. Researching for the show can, on some days, get a little heavy. And while I love doing it, sometimes I need a little break. That's when I pull out my phone, get comfortable, and launch my favorite palette cleanser, Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun and casual game filled with engaging puzzles to keep your brain entertained. Right now, I'm on level 415 and loving this new set of challenges, which, of course, update every month along with new levels, which means you never lose interest and you never get bored. What's really cool is that you can connect and play with friends from all over and create fun little challenges of your own, which is the perfect way to stay connected while still social distancing. And Best Fiends doesn't require the internet, so your gameplay won't be interrupted no matter where you're playing from. My favorite time to play is just before bed. I get cozy underneath a blanket, turn down the lights, and play a couple levels to wind down before drifting off to sleep. It's honestly one of my favorite parts of my day. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
Remember, that's friends without the R, best fiends. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. A killer rarely admits their guilt up front. They usually require solid questioning, a deal, or a plea from families that tug at their heartstrings. On February 6th, 2004, a man was charged with murder. A man who really didn't have to admit to killing because a surveillance tape caught the entire horrific event. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Joseph Peter Smith didn't have the cleanest record. He was arrested a dozen or so times while living in Sarasota, Florida, mostly felony drug charges, and by all accounts should have been securely behind bars for a number of years. But he was one of those criminals who continually slipped through the cracks, through a series of pleas no matter how his crime escalated. He convinced judges to let him enter a probation, do some community service, stay under house arrest, or go to mandatory drug rehab, all in exchange for any serious prison time. His last stint of issues came when he was sentenced to six months house arrest for a narcotics violation in 2000. He went to rehab, and a month later, his wife tipped off his probation officer that Joseph was, yet again, strung out on Oxycontin and handed over 20 bottles as proof. Instead of sending him to prison, a judge opted to extend his probation. He was arrested and put in jail in September of that year for trying to get delauded with a forged prescription and sat in jail from December 13, 2001 until January 1, 2003. Nine days later, police found him high on cocaine and passed out in his car. He was put back on probation, which was extended for three years rather than placed back in jail. That August, Joseph threatened to kill himself during an argument with his wife and was committed to a mental health facility and, despite the pleas from his mother and wife, was let out after only a month of treatment. In July, he attempted to lure a woman away before strangers intervened and got just a year of probation, was acquitted after threatening a woman with a knife, became jobless and homeless while trying to fund his expensive drug habit, and had to couch surf with some... Joseph was going nowhere fast and was sitting in his friend's borrowed car on February 1st, 2004, with a bag of cocaine and a hypodermic needle in his lap before he saw a small figure walking on the abandoned sidewalk. This day happened to be the Super Bowl, so Joseph wasn't really expecting to run into another person while out on his newest drug binge, let alone a young girl. 11-year-old Carly Bruscia was your typical preteen girl. She was sweet, bubbly, and was the type of girl who greeted everyone with a smile and a big hug. She'd been at a sleepover the day before and called her mom at around 6 p.m. to tell her that she was on her way home. Her friend's house wasn't far, a little under a mile, so she walked the familiar route, expecting to be home in about 15 minutes. As the minutes passed and her mother wondered where she was, a violent drug addict who should have been in prison long ago had locked eyes with the young girl and followed her to a shortcut behind a car wash. He positioned his car so she could not avoid him, got out, and walked in her direction. She attempted to walk away from him, but he quickly grabbed her arm and led her back to the vehicle he was driving. 
Carly was only missing for 10 minutes when her stepfather left to drive her route and her mother called 911. Despite her mother's pleas, there was no Amber Alert created for Carly Brucia because, according to law enforcement, no one had witnessed an abduction, so there was no proof that she had been taken. That perhaps the 11-year-old had simply run away. Instead, the sheriff allowed the bloodhounds to search for the girl, and for no reason other than the typical tropes, her stepfather was on the suspect list. The dogs traced her from the home where she had her sleepover to the spot behind the car wash and stopped. While there, police noticed a security camera at the back of the building and contacted the building's owner to ask if they could see the footage. The following day, police viewed the security tapes that it had been activated at 6.1 p.m., approximately the time Carly would have been taking her shortcut. They queued up the video and saw as plain as day the young girl being approached by a man who then grabbed her and dragged her off of the screen. It wasn't long before this tape was broadcast on news stations across the U.S., and both NASA and the FBI worked to enhance the images of her attacker. Soon, a tipster called with a name, Joseph Smith. And before long, at least three tips came in with that same name. Police were sent to the house where he was staying and, after finding drug paraphernalia, arrested Joseph just four days after the attack for violation of probation. Investigators soon found out that Joseph had borrowed his friend's vehicle on Sunday and did not show back up until Monday morning and, according to the odometer, had driven over 300 miles over that 16-hour period of time. Everyone worked to try and find Carly. Volunteers scoured the area, and a $50,000 reward was offered, and her parents stood in front of cameras pleading for her safe return. Everyone wanted to find the girl that they were calling Sarasota's child. Everyone except Joseph, who was tight-lipped in the police station. On February 5th, Joseph's mother and brother paid him a visit at the jail to try and get him to admit to what happened. Eventually, Joe came clean and said that he, completely out of his mind, high on cocaine, couldn't remember much of what happened that day, but said that he could tell his mother where he left the body and asked them not to go to police, hoping to use her body's location as a method to get yet another plea bargain. The pair drove to the spot Joseph told them about, the Central Church of Christ, about two miles from where she is abducted, and attempted to walk the grounds looking for disturbed earth, hoping to find the body on their own without police intervention. They turned up empty-handed, and John Smith called his brother in jail to try and get some more information. At one point, Joseph even suggested that they find the body so they could claim the $50,000 reward themselves. But eventually, it all became too much for John, and he worried their conversation was being monitored. The call, for whatever reason, was not taped at all, but his guilt was enough to make John call the FBI and report his brother. Investigators arrived at the church, and while still speaking with his brother on the phone, they dug up the small body of Carly Brucia. When Joseph heard his mother weeping over the phone as Carly's body was found, he told John to, quote, Tell mom I'm sorry. Autopsies later show that the girl had been raped both vaginally and orally before being strangled to death with a garrote. She also showed signs that she fought for her life until her last breath. Joseph Smith was charged with her murder on February 6, 2004. And despite his pleas to save his life for the sake of his family, 
was sentenced to death on March 13, 2006. Carly's law, meant to harshen parole rules for sexual offenders, was created in her honor. A law that, had it existed when she was alive, may have sent the man who killed her to prison long before their paths ever crossed. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on February 2nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.